Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, our podcast approaching the summit of its ambitions. My name's Corey Hazelhurst. I'm our partner in propaganda with Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. This weekend, international politics returned to something approaching normality. Leaders are in Cornwall for a face-to-face summit. Will the decisions they make just end up being business as usual? Europe as president, but something that hasn't really changed uh, in between the pandemic and Donald Trump's premiership is hand-wringing about, especially in the UK press, about the UK's relationship with the US. So obviously the uh, the UK has long had what has been dubbed a, a special relationship um, with the United States, perhaps best kind of seen the chummy relationship that was had between Tony Blair and, and George W. Bush. The truth of the matter though is that the special relationship is always one of those things which we like to talk about a lot but it was becoming less and less in, less important especially over the past uh four years or so with uh donald trump mo- a lot of the tories in, in mps and everything were not particularly fond of him um and he was not particularly fond of theresa may uh, i think um to basically say he would pay money to be able to not listen to her talk twist and after dinner speeches there I yeah, that could be well, quite I, yeah I, I, I think that's kind of what it was. Apparently, like um, somebody told Donald Trump how much she like, was charging for like after dinner speaking. And uh, he was basically like, what? No, she's terrible. She's like the most boring person ever. Which I feel maybe being slightly unfair to Theresa May. And there's always an element of, well, if you're pissing off Donald Trump, you must be doing at least something right. Theresa May did have a reputation, didn't she, of not being the most clubbable of politicians I suppose, and the interesting thing with, with the hand-wringing now is that you've got Boris Johnson saying that he doesn't like the term special relationship because he sees it as, he says it's quite needy. He wants to talk about an indestructible relationship, except I've not heard Joe or Jill Biden talk about the indestructible relationship at all. And instead, they've tweeted a lot about the special relationship. Yeah, this very much just does seem like it's just Boris Johnson trying to con- control the narrative in, in some capacity. And like, I kind of like the notion that the term special relationship could be seen as needy. I, I kind of do get that. For the most part, most people don't really see it as that. Ultimately, trying to replace it with a, with a different term only works if the other people are, are on board with it. And to be honest, I strongly suspect that uh, any kind of like White House that's worth its salt would avoid utilising that such sort of language because it sets precedence and creates potentially further diplomatic tensions because let's use the current example we have. So like um, one of the the big kind of talking points between um, obviously the EU and uh, Great Britain at the moment, as well as the US getting involved in this, is the Northern Ireland uh, border. Now, a special relationship implies we are very close, we can work together, We a lot of our, our aims are aligned, but we're grown-ups. Just because you have a special relationship doesn't mean we are, you know, go hand-in-hand hand on everything. You know, there's you, you work together to achieve aims, but you're not necessarily 100% lockstep with each other. An indestructible relationship sounds like something that's like, no, we are 100% going to be 
pulling ourselves together, uh, aligning with everything. And at the, uh, at, at the same time, we're not going to criticize each other. And again, if we, if we take like the Northern Ireland Protocol, which I'm sure we're going to go into a bit more detail on in the actual kind of ins and outs of this in a bit. Oh, hell yes. Yeah. Talking about Brexit on a podcast. <laughs> it's been a while. Cool. You already have the American government making quite overt moves to criticise the way that the UK is handling the Northern Irish border. Um, going as far as I believe effectively put, do, doing the the international diplomatic equivalent of putting in a formal complaint. I can't remember what it's called. No, it's something like a, democrat, a diplomatic mark or something like that is, has been sent, which is basically a formal way of saying, stop it, you're being silly. If it's an indestructible relationship, you can't do that sort of thing because all of those things tend to be very, very public. So I feel like part of this is just Boris Johnson trying to rename things because he doesn't like the word for various reasons it's it's, it's meaningless because the the biden the biden administration is not going to buy into that when you think when i think about the special relationship i think maybe more about thatcher and reagan and in the 80s it felt like that was more a relationship of of equals whereas the blair and bush relationship didn't really feel like that i think that's partly because Blair's position was essentially to stick to the US come what may, maybe partly in Iraq kind of out of ideological conviction and partly out of this thinking that actually Labour has been seen as sort of anti-American in the past and maybe needed to sort of double down on being on sticking with America. Like worrying about the special relationship becomes a bit of a metaphor for worrying about Britain's declining place in the world generally. And as we'll talk about in a podcast for our champagners on Patreon, part of Boris Johnson's shtick is about optimism. It's about a rebirth of that kind of optimistic mantra. No relationship's indestructible apart from you know, the, the one that produces this podcast, obviously. I don't know. We've come pretty close to testing that at times. Like the number of times you've made me talk about Brexit after Brexit was uh, uh, <laughs> the Brexit referendum has been done. <laughs> well, as... All listeners of this podcast will know, Steve, Brexit is very much a process and not an event. <laughs> and so one of the elements in that process, as you've said, is the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's interesting that in the run-up to this summit then, the Biden administration has been ratcheting up the rhetoric a little bit on the protocols. So the top US diplomat in Britain accused David Frost of inflaming tensions regarding the protocol. Over this weekend, Boris Johnson has met with Emmanuel Macron, he's met with Angela Merkel, and it's Merkel's final G7 summit, which is quite... Wow. Mad. Yeah, so her first one was in 2006. So, like, you know, that was... Tony Blair was Prime Minister then. You know, Romano Prodi was around. So, like, slightly off topic, it is actually going to be a very significant, like, event when Angela Merkel steps steps down. And we probably do need to talk about that at, at some point on the podcast because she has been one of the most stable presences uh, in international politics for decades at this point and it's going to be it is genuinely going to be quite interesting to see what happens there i absolutely agree uh, so johnson called for compromise on all sides regarding the protocol the problem is though i'm not really sure what that compromise is because at the moment the dispute is about is the uk going to go back on its obligations that it's signed up to an international treaty and not just any international treaty one that literally boris johnson won an election on ratifying 
Yeah. I mean, this is this is the thing. Like, if you believe that compromise is possible, it's your job to present that compromise in, in some capacity. And the, even from a basic kind of media management perspective, I feel like what the government should be doing here is if, if they have something that they think is at least semi-feasible, would be to not necessarily leak it, but like put it out there in some capacity and say, you know, this is what we think is doable. Like, we think this is fair because of X, Y, Z reasons. Um, and you you basically make that your, your baseline play for moving forward. But they're not able to do that. They don't appear to be presenting anything that actually looks like a meaningful compromise. Um, I suspect, as you say, because there isn't really one. There's just the EU giving into the... the uh, uh, the, the the British demands, which given all the talk about you know British sausages and everything that's that's that's, that's happening and uh, uh, being not being able to be sold in in, in Ireland or, or or then being smuggled into the into the uh, into the Republic of Ireland is it, it gives you an indication of like the sort of ridiculousness that 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 we're in where we are literally a part of seemingly living through a yes yes minister slash yes prime minister storyline given jim hacker became was able to become prime minister by artificially i think engineering a an international argument over the great british sausage this emulsified high fat offal tube yeah let's just remind ourselves why we've got to this point this is where steve can go out and make a cup of tea so <laughs> one of the main issues around Brexit was the Good Friday Agreement says there needs to be an open border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And the EU's original proposal was, right, well, we need to keep the border open there. We don't want checks there. Theresa May had already said that Britain wanted to diverge from the EU in terms of regulations. So there needs to be custom checks and what have you somewhere. So the EU said, why don't we put the border down the Irish Sea? Now, Theresa May refused to sign up to that because she said that that would mean that um, essentially with the break of the UK, you'd have different rules applying for different bits of the UK. It's all one sovereign territory. It's not allowed. So she came up with the idea of the backstop. And essentially, it was about having the EU and the, U uh, the UK and Northern Ireland would be all part of a customs union. There'd be a common external tariff and therefore you wouldn't need checks. And that was unacceptable to Johnson and the hardcore Brexiter wing of the Tory party. And so Johnson voted against May's deal three times, becomes prime minister. And to change the, the deal and get it to one that he was happy to get through, he actually reverts to the original EU proposal, which is to have that bordered down the Irish Sea. And what that means is what the Irish protocol the Northern Ireland Protocol is, essentially is that the UK therefore needs to administer customs checks on the Irish Sea. And Northern Ireland is part of essentially the sort of EU regulatory orbit. And that's why the DUP hate it so much, because they don't like the fact that Northern Ireland is kind of a part of different rules to the rest of the UK, because the DUP are massive unionists and want everything to be the same. Um, quite how that explains any of the DUP persisting over Brexit over the past five years is nonsensical but we'll park that for a second so as you say the, the sausage thing is interesting isn't it because on the one hand it's it's exactly the jim hacker thing but also i think chris gray made the interesting point that there's some really fundamental issues here about keeping your word in international treaties about following your obligations about making sure you have checks on 
food because actually health checks on food products are quite important. And instead, it just kind of gets Brexiters kind of say it's all about sausages because it makes the EU sound petty when it's actually about the integrity of their own single market. So the Northern Ireland Protocol had uh, in three weeks provisions at the moment in terms of pork meat, sausage meat, that kind of stuff expires. And the British essentially need to start performing proper checks to make sure that you've got the right goods coming in. UK, so the Boris Johnson administration has basically said, or hinted, they might just extend those unilaterally without informing the EU, which would be incredibly reckless to do. And the other big issue, so Tony Connolly's written an interesting blog about this 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 week, what seems to become a massive issue is rabies checks and other paperwork for pets that enter Northern Ireland from Great Britain. What should come into effect on the 1st of July is that essentially dogs will need rabies-free certificates when they're crossing the Irish Sea. Domestic pets can move freely across EU borders and with pet passports, thick of it and stuff. But countries that are outside the EU will need a sort of a part two listing is what it's called, so rabies-free certificates required. And the UK is essentially asking to the EU to kind of keep its word like of course there's no rabies in the uk so none of our dogs will have rabies so why do we need these checks and the the eu's point of view is well we know that there's no rabies because you've got these certificates that prove it and so it's it's this way again uh rabid dogs not something i expected to see part of the brexit negotiations but you do have this weird situation where the position of the UK government for the last five years has been we want to diverge in regulations. And it's been massively clear that if you want to do that, you need customs checks. And actually, the, the important part of sovereignty is putting this infrastructure in place. But since the EU say, well, you need to do these checks now because you want to diverge regulations, they say, well, this is terrible. Not only Conservative ministers, you've got journalists in the Telegraph who were saying that the, the Brexit deal Boris Johnson promised 18 months ago was fantastic and great and we still vote for it and now we're saying oh well this is terrible it all needs to be ditched i can't believe that you are, are doing this to us and you think well, this is the deal that you agreed on this is what you wanted to do very much just screams yet another example of boris johnson's government and boris johnson himself not basically having done the legwork not having actually realized what what they were signing up to and not having a plan in place actually at all and just desperately trying to move from one issue to the next it, it's firefighting like we needed to get out we needed to get um a brexit deal signed that means we need to sign up to, to to something to deal with northern ireland here is a suggestion that kind of works we'll run with it and then great this is a huge victorious success for us and then when they've looked at the details they've gone oh hang on this this doesn't work for us at all in in in, in any way for because you know we, we feel like we're being you know, poorly treated or or, or, or or whatever. It's classic, you know, Boris Johnson behavior. It's focus on the message, get, get some good news to happen, um, and then uh, you can deal with whatever else needs to happen further down the line. Um, and the problem here is, though, that it ma- has a massive impact on literally... The, the, the constitutional makeup of the of the United Kingdom down the line because this is the sort of nonsense which has the potential to become a driving force um, in, in Northern Ireland for reunification down the line. Johnson, Frost, Raab, uh, Gove, I think those are the main kind of like guilty men, have all just prioritised the immediate headline over 
the long-term deal itself being workable, which has just created mess after mess after mess. And because they and they know eventually that it's going to come back to bite them, either, you know, Tory backbenchers, because that ERG group are still there and they still will cause trouble. And for some of them, like Rob or Michael Gove, they might be sat there kind of going, oh, we need to keep them on board because we need them to support us for the potential next leadership bid that they go for whenever Johnson ends up um, stepping down. Or, and maybe for Johnson itself, it's just about, you know, continuing to, to, to survive day to day um, and keep by keeping those people on board. But either way, there we very much once again have the conservative backbenches probably guiding government policy um in a way that's not actually sensible at all for anybody involved because all they are they're concerned with is that this vague notion of what britain should be rather than what britain actually is in reality which is a part one part of this relationship and we're not in a position to force demands on the eu ultimately the eu isn't even forcing things on us we've signed up to this already this has been through parliament we voted for it it is legally standard boris johnson himself would have voted for this and also it's a logical extension of what the conservative government has said it wants brexit to be about since at least probably the first speech on brexit by theresa may and i think early 2017 when she said she wanted regulatory diversions and indeed i can't tell you say that Johnson didn't know what he was signing up to but then it's clear from what May was saying at the time about when when she was prime minister before Johnson comes in that they knew they couldn't agree to this because it would lead to the breakup of the UK so is it that he didn't know or is it they didn't care or is it is it just a bit more mendacious than that is it just well we'll sign up to it or get get it over the line and then we'll just bash the EU and try and blame them for the mess that we've created. The the, the position there of, of Boris Johnson was aware is being very generous, was aware and just doesn't care, has actually been quite generous to, to Boris Johnson. I don't think at any point Boris Johnson has had an idea about what he wants any of this to look like. He's just got this almost, you know, mythic figure in his head about what Britain should be. You know, this swashbuckling... Um, you know, free trade country, which is going out there, punching above its weight in, in, in every area and helping shape and lead the world, which, you know, in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad notion of this of, 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 of an aim. But, but the issue is he's just let that kind of cloud of, of how he views things. So when you end up in a position where he, ha- he is forced to make a choice, because again, the, the, the thing you're talking, you, you, you mentioned there previously, is that that was May's notion of what was acceptable and what isn't. Like, Boris Johnson wasn't even the first person to resign from cabinet uh, as uh, to, to, to oppose um, May's deal. That was David Davis. Um, so, like, it, it's all, everything is reactive for him. So I think he does, he hasn't been thinking about any of this in the long term. And so I don't think he is being necessarily being mendacious, although I'm sure that mendacity does come about in the response to it. It was like, well, we can get kind of get away with this because, you know, no one likes the EU. We can just bash them. That's 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 fine. That at least covers our arse in some areas. 
But I think the core decision itself, I don't think it was, I very much think with like, like with most things in life, and certainly with this administration, incompetence is much more likely than, you know, conspiracy. I, I think it's much more likely that they've just kind of screwed up, not realised what's going on, and are just trying to cover their asses. than they were sat there being all Machiavellian, kind of going, yes, 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 we can do this, and then we can blame it on them. It's pretty shameful, to be fair that you've got a government which, as you say, insists on this view, and, and Johnston Fro- Frost especially, insisting on this notion of sovereignty, but then are completely unwilling to take the consequences of what that means in any sort of practical form. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a really interesting little notion behind behind all of this that we're not going to know, sadly, I suspect, for probably decades, but it's Frost's role in all of this, because this is a man who's been central to a lot of everything that's kind of been going on and like we know his name we know what he's doing in the broader sense and we know kind of what his opinions are but i get i get the feeling that there's a future like history dissertation or phd to be written on him and his influence on all of these sorts of uh, events and 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 the and the kind of like the the setup for all of these negotiations both obviously in the run-up to the deal being agreed and now after it and I, I just have this strong suspicion that frost is probably the one that's kind of causing an awful lot of these problems because like I, i'm very much coming more and more to the conclusion that actually boris johnson doesn't really have any strong ideals or ideas of himself or himself um and as a result of that he is just quite easy to guide in in various different ways and and you can kind of there's some so kind of changing topic slightly, but there's a like another example of this in that um obviously a lot of the like the anti-trans um stuff that's been coming out of the government and things like that has been kind of driven specifically by um a couple of core advisors working with Liz Truss for, for the for the most part, I think. There's been all kinds of like quotes and things coming out about Johnson's actual kind of core core instinct on these things isn't you know, not isn't necessarily as like anti-trans as, as a lot of what the government's doing, but he's being led there because he doesn't have any actual ideas or really any real principles himself. And as such, he's just when they say, "Oh no, but it'll be popular," he's just like, "Oh, I don't like it, but okay, if it gives us a few extra polling points, I'm I'm, I'm willing to tolerate it." And I think you can probably say you could probably have a similar thing happening with um, with Frost and Johnson's relationship, where Frost is probably maybe just that little bit more of a headbanger on the issue um and he's just guide and it's just being and he's just guiding johnson and when you and as we've said before when you consider that the uh, johnson cabinet is filled with effectively cronies and rather than actual like people of substance and that are actually capable um you're not going to there's there's nobody necessarily in cabinet to fight back against that so when he is being guided down the wrong path there's no one there to say actually boris johnson no you don't you don't do that um this is why we shouldn't do that and instead they just go well that's the prime minister's view and it's being guided by somebody else but eh, it's fine same with cummings like it's the same thing with dominic cummings as well um so i think there's just enough evidence kind of like generating to support that notion that i i feel like frost is probably actually the main kind of bulwark against actually making any meaningful progress on this sort of stuff i think that's a really good point i think i I was going to mention cummings as a sort of example of that as well because as you say given that johnson doesn't seem to have a prevailing ideology apart from just to make people like him yeah that he finds it quite seductive when you've got probably quite 
smart, reasonably charismatic people who are able to present a plan of what should happen. Yeah. And that seemed to be what Cummings was gave Johnson and why he was so reluctant to get rid of him after Barnard Castle because kind of Cummings was like the, the ideological underpinning behind a lot of what Johnson was doing. It gave a kind of underpinning philosophy to what was going on. Maybe Frost is the same about the Brexit stuff because, yeah, I was thinking at some point we're going to have to record our um, Movers and Shakers episode looking at our picks from the start of 2021. Um, and uh, just, again, I was thinking that actually Frost would have been a very interesting sort of wild card pick um, in terms of UK politics. He's very much gone under the radar. It wasn't really talked about for the first three and a half, four years of this podcast, but has kind of become yeah, one of the sort of arch villains of the piece. Quite, quite late on in the day, a sort of cult figure in the seventh season of the Brexit box set. Yeah, that, that's a very good way to describe him, actually, I think. As I say, Cummings is very much another example of, of that kind of figure, somebody who's able to present a plan, somebody who's able to say, no, this is how it should be done. Um, and again, because Boris Johnson isn't a leader in any stretch of the imagination, actually, um, he just kind of blows with the wind and just goes with what's presented to him. And because he's filled, got a room filled with cronies, nobody really questions that. Or if they do, like the people who are actually kind of presenting him with plans go, look, they're opposing me for X, Y, Z reasons, some of which may be legitimate, some of which may not be, who the hell knows at this point. But like, what's the, what's the alternative? They're not providing alternative. So we have to go with this. And then he goes, yeah, no, you're right. There isn't, there, there is no alternative that's being put forward. So we go with it. Yeah. Or well, certainly with a lot of decisions over, over COVID and lockdown restrictions, as you delay making a decision for so long until the thing that you should have done three weeks ago becomes the only sane option. Yeah. So decision not, wasn't taken at this summit. Uh, it was taken a week or two ago, but it's something that I think is, is potentially really interesting, isn't it? Is this um, recently agreed rate of this minimum corporation tax rate? globally yeah. um actually again thinking about this sort of america is back this new world order is feels like this probably the best one of the best signs actually since um joe biden became president of this of international corporations sort of working again isn't it um finance ministers i think agreed to a, a minimum corporation tax rate of 15 percent, which i think the original plan from the biden administration was for 21 percent corporation tax so i don't think johnson was sort of it doesn't sound like the johnson administration wanted to go that high so that it's got settled on 15 percent. there's an interesting phrase that was picked up by tortoise sense maker email um gabriel zuckman who's a berkeley berkeley economist talked about this agreement being historic inadequate and promising so historic because it's the first such agreement which is very very exciting um inadequate because actually 15 percent is a bit too low so ireland is, is a tax haven and its tax rate is, you know, 12, 12.5%, so 15, not much more than that. But also promising, because it is actually a real start of um, trying to stop companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and Microsoft essentially booking profits in low-tax regions. So the example Tortoise gave was that Microsoft in Ireland made £222 million profit, but didn't pay any corporation tax on that because it's resident in Bermuda, which has about 70,000 people. So actually, the the rate, um, even just the, the rate that's been agreed at 15%, uh, the IPPR said that this would raise £7.9 billion for the UK. Um, if it was 21%, it would have raised about £14 billion, which would have completely paid for the extra cost of the NHS has had to cope with for, for COVID. So it does seem really, really significant, this, doesn't it? 
Oh, 100%. This is incredibly significant. This is the the sort of thing where, you know, in, 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 in future like economic textbooks and, and, and things when they when they're looking at like, you know, the history of various kind of like economic ideas or, or kind of like the development of economics um, in, in the practical world. This is the sort of thing which gets talked about, because it is such a shift such a radical kind of like change just even like the like even if you just ignored the agreement itself that's actually arrived just the fact that you know the united states government was basically turned around and said you know what we're actually in favor of just setting a minimum for this that alone like was is just just an, an amazing change of, uh, of of face for the us like even under obama or and, and Bill Clinton, like you never had this kind of kind of like push for these sorts of things. Like you don't expect it like of, of under the Republicans, but you might kind of want to see that sort of progress happening um, under the Democrats. But it's it's never really been a thing. Biden comes along and he's made it a, some form of a priority. And suddenly, guess what? It's actually emerging as a, as a possibility. This goes to show how much of what is accepted fact in terms of economics in terms of like the the political economy of what is and isn't possible and everything is actually not necessarily true at all. Like we are now seeing that seeing a lot of those foundations of political economics to be challenged. So let's continue doing that, please, and let's see what more we can get. Because as you can say, the difference between fifteen and twenty one is an is an extra like seven billion, which is a significant amount of money. Which can be utilised, like in, in in the UK, for all kinds of different things, and and I think this this is probably one of those areas where you actually the the conservatives kind of like obsession with like sound money actually kind of works in their favour a little bit, and that if everybody is kind that if everybody is kind of agreeing to this sort of thing, then Britain isn't necessarily losing out, but it is in fact making gains in in, in, in itself, so it can like you know either has more money to, to spend on things or it can have more money coming in so that it can then, you know, lower taxes, whatever that might, might look like. Like the conservative, this aligns very much with what, what, what the British conservatives want to kind of, kind of see and do. So um, it is a very big change. That's incredibly meaningful and hopefully just the beginning of so much more but more importantly it's something that can actually it's demonstrating that doesn't matter whether it's a left-wing government or a right-wing government in power we can actually make some changes on on this front and because there's these agreements are happening across the political this agreement came across the political spectrum so this comes back to what it was the podcast you did with patrick i think while i was away uh, of joe biden's speech to congress talking about the, the trick, his comment that trickle down economics doesn't work and so that kind of again come out with Thatcher and Reagan that special relationship but their paradigm of low taxes no state intervention big government doesn't work it, it's it's part of that breaking down which I think is really really interesting it, the the estimate from the OECD is that this agreement could generate not so as you say like seven billion in Britain um, 50 to 80 billion dollars a year in tax revenues worldwide and they would genuinely help a lot of the poorest countries in the world because it tends to be the poorest countries in the world where actually corporation taxes are, are sort of set lower so it kind of raises the, the threshold and also it's from those companies that can pay as well so it tends to be a big multinationals like apple and google which means your tax take looks a little bit more equitable doesn't it because at the moment you've got the the profits of some of the biggest com uh, companies 
going massively up um but then the tax rate has has kind of gone down whereas with ordinary people small and medium-sized businesses just can't afford to to do that sort of um booking profits yeah neither can individuals as well so it is is massively important but one thing i wasn't sure about is again just to bring this back to brexit just because i'm obsessed part of some of the argument of the johnson government uh it was that britain could use brexit to be a sort of singapore on thames and become a, a bit of a tax haven um, and so i wonder if actually I, I don't know this is kind of top of head speculation but i wonder if this sort of agreement maybe puts the kibosh on that a little bit I mean, it, it, it clearly does. But also, I'm not sure to what extent that was actually really the plan. I felt like if that was the that that was actually a, a major plan, then we'd have seen much more movement in that direction. Um, and I don't really think we, we, we have. We've had like the free ports and, and, and things like that, but nothing. No, I wouldn't say we've, we've had anything substantial in terms of like, you know, looking to turn Britain into a into a tax haven. Um, but absolutely, this sort of um, agreement 100% does kind of put the kibosh on that that kind of stuff because if we if we're kind of going along with this then well there's a minimum that we have to um to to abide by and uh if we're not well that damages our relationship with an awful lot of other uh, a lot of the G7 and and then the other the, like more bigger economies in the world and, and and one thing the Boris Johnson government's been very big on is not damaging relationships with some of the key countries in the world <laughs> and its key partners thank you for listening to this episode we'll have a cheeky episode probably coming out on your feed in the week about the route over the aid budget which has been bubbling under the surface of the tory party for the past couple of weeks we're going to record an episode for our champagners imminently on the pathology of of the psychology of boris johnson uh, and a very interesting Atlantic profile by Tom McTague, which was all over Twitter this week. If you want to hear that and other jolly episodes we've done, where do you need to go, Steve? You can go to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where for but a few pounds every month, you can gain access to these unique episodes, unique content, discussions, all kinds of fun and games. Uh, and uh, yeah, just head over there, um, check it out. And uh, we hope you can join our, our little group of regulars over there. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times, and James Cram designed our logo. My Twitter handle is at paperbackwriter. Mine's at, at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Mm-hmm.